Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, George Belshaw and Calvin Beton. Uh, thanks so much for joining us as always. Uh, we love to hear from you and we've heard from another one of you this week. So I'm going to start by reading out an email from Danny Everett, uh, who got in touch a couple of weeks ago, but I forgot to read his email out. Uh, Danny says, I'm a new listener from Atlanta, Georgia. A uh, lovely part of the world. One of my best friends lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I wanted to take a second and write up to you after listening to your podcast last week. It was the first episode I've listened to and I really enjoyed it. My wife, uh, Shannon, and I listened to it while driving back to Atlanta from finals weekend at the Charleston Open, where sadly we were rooting for Bedosa or Jabir. I love the easy rapport the two of you had. Hope George feels better soon. Oh, so he enjoyed an episode without George, which is great news. Yeah, and your insightful commentary, uh, tennis is one of the few things my wife and I have a common passion for, so it's nice to be able to listen to a podcast together. Uh, we also enjoy, and then I've redacted the name of another ten- two tennis podcasts, uh, you Brits have a real monopoly on the market, it seems. Uh, thanks very much for getting in touch, Danny. Um, he- he's also written a bit about Carlos Alcaraz, which I think we'll come on to uh, a little bit later on. But if you do want to get in touch, you can always email us, lovetennispod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a five-star review. Anything you put in a five-star review, I will read out. That's my guarantee to you. Uh, So please do do that. It helps us reach more people. It helps us spend more time on the pod, and it makes us all feel better. Right, on with the tennis today. Uh, We've got loads to talk about. We are, of course, going to cover Russia and Belarus, Belarus, I should say, being banned from Wimbledon, and in fact, all the British events over the summer on grass. Uh, There's also some threats that that might happen in other places now as well. Uh, We'll talk about some tennis. Carlos Alcaraz winning a title in Barcelona. Igor Strontek doing so out in Stuttgart as well. Emma Raducanu playing on clay. Uh, Anastasia Potapova also winning a title, as did Andrei Rublev. Good week for the Russians on the court, if not off it. Uh, Novak Djokovic got to the final in Belgrade as well. We'll also talk about the drop shot in Calvin's minute tennis. Andy Murray coming back to clay. Serena Williams buying Chelsea. Carlos Alcaraz into the top 10. WTA out of China. 
somehow it's going to take us an hour. Um, there really is only one place to start, though, and that is Wimbledon. We are, by my maths, two months away from Wimbledon. I'm heading down there tomorrow for the first time this year, I think, uh, for the spring press conference, where I assume the only thing anyone will be talking about is the All England Club's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players uh, from Wimbledon this summer. Uh, it is, of course, a reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's something that other sports have done with team players. It's something that the ATP and WTA have not chosen to do. Uh, it's caused quite a significant stink, which I believe is basically being discussed in the corridors of power in the ATP uh, and the WTA over the next couple of days. So it may be that what we say today is kind of overtaken by that. Um, I'll just share with you a little bit of what Ian Hewitt, the chairman of the All England Club, said. He said, we recognise that this is hard on the individuals affected and is with sadness that they will suffer for the actions of the leaders of the Russian regime. We have very carefully considered the alternative measures that might be taken, but given the high-profile environment of the championships, the importance of not allowing sport to be used to promote the Russian regime and our broader concerns for public and player, including family safety, we do not believe it is viable to proceed on any other basis at the championships. If circumstances change materially between now and June, we will consider and respond accordingly. George, right decision or wrong decision? <laughs> uh, well, as someone who never sits on the fence, you'll, you'll be shocked to hear. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I am genuinely like really quite torn. It's one of those things where I'm like, I can really, really see both sides of the argument on this. I can understand from Wimbledon's perspective, it would be pretty awkward to have Daniel Medvedev going and winning the title or... Sabalenka or whatever you know those are kind of realistic um, possibilities you know there's probably other points how much of some of these players benefited from you know Russian government money etc as well you know they use it as quite a uh, I suppose like a, a power growing thing really it's almost like some form of sports watching um, you know these regimes use so I can get why you wouldn't want to influence it I do also feel it's it is kind of unfair on these players who probably have very little to do with it. They're kind of stuck in between a, a rock and a hard place in the sense that it's all very well us sitting here saying, oh, these guys should be condemning Putin and whatever, but we don't have our family there. You know, God knows what could happen to them. So I, I have sympathy for both sides. I, I suspect, I was, well, if there's, there's many things that could go on. I, I suspect they won't be the only tournaments to do it in the end. I'm pretty sure well it sounds like the italian open is strongly considering it in two weeks and maybe the french open as well um so i, d I don't think it would be just them it's all this classic wimbledon moving very early and kind of unilaterally and i was slightly surprised from that perspective the lta came along for the ride but i'm sure we can go into that in a little bit later um calvin i know you you feel quite strongly that this is this is the wrong decision why um, it's entirely based on the fact that tennis players are independent contractors. They don't represent their country in anything other than the ATP Cup or in uh, Davis Cup or in Billie Jean King Cup. Um, it doesn't work like in other sports or even in such as football where they're representing a city that may be in the country. They're, they're purely representing themselves. And I, I don't agree with it on that basis that most players don't have any real connection to their country it's just something that's happening we i the players who i coach don't have really have any affinity to great britain when they play tennis 
it's not like they're representing Britain if we're off somewhere in the world. They're representing themselves purely. So for that basis, I don't think it's I don't think they should be doing what they're doing. We're we're also now, if if some of the rumors are correct, we're opening up a whole can of worms on ranking points that I don't see any way that they can get round. Uh, yeah, what you're alluding to there, Calvin, is uh, the ATP and WTA threatening to effectively desanction uh, Wimbledon uh, and remove the ranking points from the event. Of course, uh, Grand Slams are a huge bastion of, of your ranking, realistically. Um, we, we know all about that from, from Cam Norrie's perspective, for example, and how hard it is to drag your way up the rankings if you don't do well at the Grand Slams. Just to put it into context, uh, a winner of a Grand Slam gets 2,000 points. But more than that, if you win the first round of a Grand Slam tournament, you get 45. You win the second round, you go up to 90 uh, and then 180 and doubles all the way pretty much um, to then into into the final. Uh, and that, of course, I mean, you were mentioning earlier, Calvin, an example of a player who, you know, I think is Alistair Gray, who, who you know, part of his ranking is built on performance at, at Wimbledon. Yeah, he won. I don't remember whether they won one round or two rounds at Wimbledon, but um, yeah, just a huge amount of points. I think it's more than 50% of his doubles points. He's had a really great year in singles as well, but about 50% of his doubles points are from Wimbledon last year. If if Wimbledon doesn't have ranking points, his ranking plummets on that basis. Would then, I mean, someone like him, would they then say, well, I'm not going to play Wimbledon? No, because the money's good. Yeah, that's, that's the only reason, but it's the other tournaments around there. I don't see how they'd have a base. I, I do see how they'd have a basis. You could say that, ranking points from the other tournaments count like the other grass tournaments can count because you can go and play elsewhere in those weeks whereas Wimbledon it's the only thing that happens that week but then again players shouldn't be have to make decisions based on this and it's not this is not really just affecting Russian or Belarusian players at all it's affecting everybody so if 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 they say that no British tournament can have ranking points if we're stopping Russian and Belarusian players from from entering is huge has huge consequences on British players. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But it, it, I think the it, the interesting thing for me now is, will they get strength in numbers? Will other events kind of follow suit? I think it's a much harder position for the WTA to suddenly be like, okay, well, the ATP. If it's one thing to say we're going to scrap Wimbledon ranking points, but can you do that for two of your Grand Slams for? all the clay court tournaments before that, the US Open decide the same as well. So I think there'll be kind of more power coming through. But yeah, I mean, I, I was really surprised the LTA are kind of on board with this, like to a degree, because like Wimbledon has so much power, has so much clout um, that they can, and, and we've seen Grand Slams just act unilaterally so often. Um, but this is quite a ballsy move from the LTA, I'd say. Like they don't really have the allure. There are other tournaments going on in the build-up to the grass court, there's kind of no, there's genuinely more risk for a lot of those tournaments, I think, than Wimbledon, given its kind of prestige, if you like. But, but let's not all, let's also not forget that the LTA gets 40, 50 million quid a year from the All England Club. And, no, and as I always say to you, George, it staggers me, that is done as a, basically a favour. Like it, there is no, yeah. as far as I've ever been able to find out from anyone who knows, there is no contractual obligation for the All England Club to give this um, profit to uh, the LTA. So while I admit that there's no way Wimbledon would ever say, well, we're just going to hang on to this cash if you don't toe the line with us, it does create a power dynamic whereby when the All England Club say one thing, 
the LTA are very unlikely to not say another. And I would also suggest that but before any of this came out, there's no way that they wouldn't have consulted with each other. We know that they didn't. And therefore, if they both agree on it, it's more likely to happen, if that makes sense. But the LTA are also, you know, big partners of the ATP and the WCA Tour and really rely on them as well. You know, the, they can take those events away from the LTA pretty easily, like compared to Wimbledon. Like moving one of the Grand Slams is infinitely tougher, in my opinion, compared to like taking out some 90Ks in Ilkley or whatever. Um, and it's, you know, it's really important for the structure of the British game that those events do function in many ways. It is a lot of kind of playing opportunities. We've spoken a lot about how like Italian tennis is really building itself well on kind of challenger events. And, you know, we could do with a lot more of those, but even those other kind of grass courts events are really massive parts of like development here. Um, I, yeah, there is no contractual thing with Wimbledon, but it'd be a serious PR own goal if they were to stop like funding the British game over like a political decision. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy one. I said at the start, like, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer here. I think it's, it's a really, really tough decision and I can completely see everyone's side on it. Um, I think at the end of the day though, is the decision as big in the kind of grander scheme of things, I suppose. Like when I'm thinking about the unfairness on the players, is it, you know, is that really a, a serious concern during this kind of time of international crisis? I don't know. I mean, it's it's, it's hard, I suppose. This is a tennis podcast rather than a, a, a political podcast. So I, I don't want to claim to have any great nuance there. Um, it's not as straightforward as saying that Wimbledon sort of do it as a favour. They're giving them the money. The tournament is actually run. It has to be run through the governing body. So the initial, the, the Grand Slam nations are France, Australia, America and the UK. So the LTA, it, it's kind of a, it's an agreement that works for both parties because yeah. the LTA run it at Wimbledon and allow them to make a huge amount of money. There's always talk that should the LTA want to, they can just set up a new club and decide that the, basically the, the British Open is not run at Wimbledon and they can right. take all, all the money. So it, it's not like Wimbledon are just doing them a favor on that front. Um, so yeah, it, it benefits both parties. The other thing I was going to say is, I still don't know when and how this ends, for example. like well, yeah. The one thing that, that it looks like now is that this this war or this conflict, it's a, it's a war, let's have it right, an invasion, um, is it's probably not going to end anytime soon. And by their nature as well, as much as people might think, do wars really end? Like, what happens if two years from now, say, Putin and they come to an agreement that he takes half of Ukraine? Are we then just letting Belarusian and Russian players back in? He's invaded a country and taken half. Or, or It's not like we suddenly agree, rarely in wars is a treaty signed and that's the end of the conflict. So yeah. I don't know when. It's, it's more than likely that this is still going on 18 months, three years from now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a very high likelihood, or at least there is a likelihood that basically Putin ends up... Um occupying areas of eastern ukraine like the donbass region um just as he did with crimea or somewhere like that so yeah i i think that's a good point but i would also say that you know sport has a responsibility to take a role in these things and it's not dissimilar to what we have with apartheid and excluding south african players of all sports from you know sport around the world and 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 people disagreed on that and you know the rebel cricket tours that went to south africa nevertheless during apartheid um yeah, I agree. I think it's very difficult. And I think you probably are wiping out 
a few of these players' careers for, for three or four years. Um, but equally, there's nothing to stop them... Uh, well, I suppose there are some things stopping them defecting, but it would be, you know, it, it would be a, an option and lots of people did it and lots of people who have come from countries where sanctions have been put upon them and said, right, well, I give up my passport then, I'll represent France or Portugal or, or Algeria or wherever it happens to be. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a really good point. I think that's definitely something that could kind of happen down the line. I mean, but you're right, Kevin. I mean, the, the issue is longevity. When do you start? When do you stop any of this sort of stuff? It's who else is going to do it. You know, there's a few which is why I think this week will be quite significant in terms of how many people get on board because you you are, if everyone does agree that they should do this and start going forward and kind of ban them from around, you know, it's all very well, we'll say people like Medvedev could be denied the chance of winning Wimbledon or whatever, but for other players who are actually trying to get into a career, wiping out two or three years of a career, that, that's it, that's done, that's just not going to happen. Um, but like the professional game, someone like Medvedev can probably come back no problem in two years and still be pretty brilliant. But for those other guys who are trying to make their way up, it's going to be you know, really quite hard. So, yeah, it's a really tough decision all around. And as you say, hard to know where we're drawing the lines anywhere. When does this start? When does this stop? How does it end? Although I would say I don't find those types of arguments particularly convincing because mm-hmm. drawing lines and deciding how much things matter and how much things don't matter and when they start and when they stop, that is what you do every day. Like every day you leave the house and you go, oh, well, it's raining, but it's only raining a bit, so I won't wear a coat. Or you go, oh, well, actually, I could get run over if I cross this road, but actually the chances are I won't. Like those decisions, and if you lived in a different country, the roads would be more dangerous and you'd think about crossing the road more. But those decisions are something we do every day. And as sporting bodies, you you have to make these judgment calls all the time and you have to decide where and when you make those decisions. I, I think it's very brave and bold of Wimbledon to stand up and say, we've decided that there's a line. Because, uh, to be honest, when it comes to COVID and vaccination, they didn't take that approach. They said, we're just going to do what the government says. We're just going to, whatever the government guidelines are, we're just going to stick by them. They didn't take a stance on that because, incredibly, they thought that was too politically dangerous, whereas taking a stance on war they found easier. But I mean, that's just where we are in the in the current kind of um, consensus. Yeah, and again, w- Wimbledon is very closely linked to the government, so they certainly wouldn't be doing anything without very strong backing within those powers of corridor. You know, there's they've they've always got the upper hand, Wimbledon, with a lot of their kind of lucid connections, if you like. Um, a, so. What's a lucid connection when it's at home, uh, George? Is that is that a civil service term? <laughs> Now that you I, live I no in the point. corridors of power, you, you can, you've actually learned the lingo. Oh, there's no power anywhere to do with me. George has got this new that. tattoo that you won't be able to see of just one eye in a pyramid on the back of his hand. I've no idea what it means. But... Have you got one of those notes from Jacob Rees-Mogg, George? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not. Different department, unfortunately. Right, okay. Unfortunately, no comment. Um, what I think will be quite interesting going forward, to kind of throw this forward a little bit, um, will be, uh, as you mentioned, George, and alluded to, when this first broke four or five days ago, it felt that Wimbledon were very much out of step with everyone and that actually you know, most other tournaments would not take these steps. Certainly the ATP and the WTA said they felt it was an entirely unfair thing to do. 
But now we hear that the Italian government are thinking of intervening and stopping Russian and Belarusian players playing in Rome. We don't think anything's going to happen in Madrid. I mean, that is now so close. I think qualifying starts in three days for the WTA event, so that would probably be inactionable. But we also hear that now the French presidential elections are over, um, that they may consider taking action because it's a little bit less of a political hot potato. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, that Marine Le Pen will take that, like, well, I, who knows how she'll take it. But having watched a lot of videos of how her supporters took the election result, I think it might get quite punchy. And actually, I don't want to make jokes about that. But more to the point, how will the rest of the world respond to this, Calvin? I think for tennis, and I think this is what a lot of people don't get, because there's, there's, when there's a slam on, there's only one tournament on that week. When there's a, a 250 or, sorry, a, five, a, a 1,000, it's basically there's only that tournament on. Whereas down further down, you've got usually about five or six challengers on in any one week. You've got about 14 futures tournaments, and that's just immense. And the same thing would happen in women's. And the whole premise of the tennis tour works that players can choose to play whichever tournaments they want. Now, if you're taking out, if certain countries are banning certain players from entering, but they're, they're commanding the same ranking points, the tour kind of collapses then. It doesn't make any sense because then you'd go, why wouldn't you go to a tournament? Rus Russian players tend to be quite good. So why wouldn't you go and play tournaments in places where the Russians are not allowed to enter as opposed to places where they are allowed to enter? I just uh, I don't see how long this is sustainable for. That's in, and, and still have. And I get that it's not the main problem here. I'm, but I'm speaking it is a tennis podcast. I'm talking yep. purely about um, about the tennis side of it. The rankings will become a mess if if you do this. I, that's what my concern is. The other the other kind of elephant in the room, I think, from a Tennessee perspective, um, is, is the role in the ATP and WTA in all of this. Like their job is to represent both tournaments and the players. Mm -hmm. And in situations of conflict like this, I don't see how you can actually feasibly do that. They've obviously landed on the player side at the minute. But if that momentum builds up and say every kind of big tennis nation decides to start banning on those sides, you know, I think it really exposes like quite a fundamental flaw. And, you know, for all we've kind of poked fun at Djokovic's PTPA sometimes and whether they're the right people to lose it, they, they've always had a fair point about the actual governance. Like it, they're a great conflict of interest and it, uh, it's hard to resolve those. And this is really going to shine a light on that, I think. You mentioned the PTPA, George, which for people who don't know is the players' union set up in part by Novak Djokovic and a great deal of other players, but of course being the world number one, he's the most significant one. Uh, they did release a statement three days ago saying, we strongly denounce the Russian and Belarusian invasion of Ukraine. We recognise that we cannot stop violence, but our collective voice can be used to support Ukraine and its citizens who continue to advocate for peace and justice. Uh, the PTPA is committed to learning from and protecting our tennis, both privately and publicly. We've listened to many individuals who are deeply impacted by this war and thank them for sharing their stories. As a major competition throughout our sport contemplates banning Russian and Belarusian athletes, we have to reflect and understand that many of them have lost the freedom of choice and expression due to the laws uh, in Russia and Belarus. The PTPA does not discriminate against any tennis player based on nationality, but will stand against those who support, express or commit violence against the innocent. Now, for 15 points, can anyone tell me what the PTPA's point of view is? Because <laughs> I don't think they have view, one. 
Yeah, their point of view seems quite similar to mine that there's lots of arguments on both sides but they yeah. really should be defending but I guess this is the problem because you know there are Ukrainian players out there who strongly strongly agree with this decision and other yeah. players will strongly agree like it's hard to have a stance on this it's like but they but so so this is the problem right like if this were a trade union you would poll the members on it you'd hold some sort of ballot yeah and then you would say right well this is the democratic decision that the union has decided they stand for and you would say we will of course support individual players in individual cases whether they be Ukrainian or Russian, and give them the support that they individually need, but this is the view of the players' union. That's how a union works. That is how collective action works. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think I think it was Ben Rothenberg who called this like a massive missed opportunity because you know this was a really good chance for them to like show why a, a union is needed for certain issues and why it doesn't make sense to happen within the WTA and ATP, and they've kind of said nothing. And, done yeah. nothing so it's, um yeah. do we think it's likely that uh players could boycott wimbledon over this do you think do you think any players might actually take a stance and say i'm not going to play and if so who <laughs> i think it's a i think this again comes back to the point about how widespread it becomes with other tournaments i think it's more possible if it was just wimbledon for like the sanctions that calvin kind of mentioned about like rankings points and stuff like that but if if the french get on board and the Italian Open, I, I don't really, I don't really see that. Like at the end of the day, as much as you know, we like tennis. It, you have to be kind of inherently selfish about your own career. They'll all want to play. They'll all want to win titles. They'll all want to take the money. Um, so I, I, I personally don't see it if it becomes as widespread as I suspect it might. Um, I, I see Nikola Pilic, the uh, Croatian former player, has come out and said that he would support a boycott. Um, he says there is every kind of Russia phobia in Great Britain. Uh, it has always been like this. I don't think anything like this was done when Americans invaded Iraq and killed large numbers of civilians. Did they ban their tennis players from playing? I consider it a real exaggeration. Um, this kind of whataboutery is kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I said you have to decide which wars are better and which wars are worse. Um, as far as I know, no one's been convicted of committing any war crimes uh, in, in the Middle East on a mass scale, certainly not uh, government-sanctioned ones, although I know that there are people who would campaign against the Iraq war and suggest otherwise, but I'm afraid the legal system disagrees with you. Um, but we are fairly sure, and there is repeated evidence for war crimes having been committed in Ukraine. So we've decided, as a sport, that that's where we draw the line. Um, I, does anyone care what Nikola Pilic says? Uh, no, I mean it's it's a nonsense anyway because at the time the, the Iraq stuff is is sort of in hindsight. We yeah. know it was a bit of a mess, but at the time there was a leader who was threatening to attack other countries. Yeah. So that that's why it happened. Um, but it's it's not even the same thing. You could you could make the same argument, although there aren't many. You could make the same argument. Why aren't Saudi Arabian players banned? Uh, but there aren't any, so that's probably why. <laughs> well, I, I think this is actually, and, and this kind of bring, come, brings me on to the point that I've made to a lot of people, which is that Russia, more than any other warmongering country in the world, has aggressively used sport to wash its image, to sanitise its image. Um, Putin uses the Olympics to start invasions. In 2008, on the day of the opening ceremony of the Olympics, he invaded Georgia. Uh, in 2014, I think a couple of weeks after the beginning of uh, the Sochi Winter Olympics, he invaded Ukraine. And now he went to China during the Beijing Winter Olympics. He was at the opening ceremony talking to his biggest ally in the world, Xi Jinping, and consequently invaded Ukraine shortly afterwards. Make no mistake, 
Russia uses sport to create a smokescreen around these wars. That's why it's so important, in particular, that sport stands up against Russia. It's not a case of Russia-phobia. It's a case of a regime that has aggressively used sport for ill means, basically. And I'm sorry, I'm dreadfully sorry, that Daniil Medvedev is going to suffer at the hands of that. Although I don't think his kids will starve. I, and I'm sorry that Andrei Rublev will suffer at the hands of that to an extent. Uh, or Anastasia Pavlichenkova, or Lyudmila Samsonova, who frankly... You know, hasn't had a lot to do with Russia in recent years, but that that's that's life, unfortunately, and there are far greater sufferings going on. What, what did we make of Rublev's alternative suggestion? Seeing as you've, so he, you'll have to fill me in on on exactly what was going on here because I was on holiday. But he said that the the Wimbledon spoke to the Russian and Belarusian players, and they said they agreed to sign a, a contract and then donate their prize money to Ukrainian humanitarian causes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's a great idea. I, th- I, th- I, I'm a little bit disappointed that Wimbledon, Wimbledon didn't bite on that because, I, I think that would have been if you'd publicised that really hard, and if Wimbledon had say agreed to match them pound for pound, you know, um, it, albeit that the prize money comes from Wimbledon anyway, but you know what I mean. Um, I think that would have been a very uh, strong message, but I can see that they, in the end, found it unacceptable. And, you know, Wimbledon is about enduring images and the idea of Daniil Medvedev standing on the balcony, holding up the trophy, having been presented it by a member of the British royal family. I, I can see why, from a PR perspective, that is unavoidably and, and kind of intolerably bad. Um, I don't know, Calvin, would you, would you have gone for the donating prize money line? Yeah, I think it was fair enough. I don't know. I don't know what they want the players to do. This is the thing, other than come out and categorically slate Putin and slate the war, which they can't do. It's impossible yeah. for them to do it. We know why. Um, what What would the feeling be if, say, Andre Rublev did that or Daniil Medvedev did that, and then it came out that his family have disappeared? How would tennis feel about the situation then? How would Wimbledon feel about it then? There's some moralizing to be done then. But so I don't know what what really what they want them to do and and how they want them to get back into playing yeah yeah i i, I think that is a very good question i don't i don't have an answer george do, do you have a if you would put yourself no, I, in those no, shoes? This, is, this comes back to it because i you know i i genuinely think there is real credence on both sides of the arguments on this entire thing and that that is a really unavoidable part of this is that you know the ptpa aren't going to give you a, jo- a job <laughs> But, but, but there's not a good solution in this. I mean, there rarely is in war, I suppose, as a whole, not to get too philosophical, but, you know. It's, uh... oh, breaking news from George Belshaw, war is bad. <laughs> glad, we, glad we nailed that one. I felt like we hadn't stressed that enough. So that might be the podcast title. War is bad. Yeah, war Next. is bad. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I think it's just all, all very messy and horrible in the first place. And I don't it's always a shame that it comes into stuff like tennis, I suppose. But I also think it's great that tennis should make stances. So. And can make a difference. Basically, I'm saying and, nothing. Yeah. Um, George, you wanted to shine some light on an interview with Sergei Stokowski, who has obviously been, um, you, you all know him as the stack attack, uh, as a tennis player. Uh, people in Ukraine now know him as a war hero, George. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a really good interview. It was um, Mike Nixon from the Daily Mail. Obviously, like really well-timed with the kind of Wimbledon news at the minute as well but 
he was kind of talking about the context. And I think, again, if I were to lean slightly to a side, this interview was probably a bit of a piece of me moving towards more broad support of Wimbledon's um, decision, to be honest. Like, I thought it was a really... Just puts it into context. It's absolutely horrendous, the sort of things that Stokowski's detailing. And, you know, when I'm actually framing this conversation, I think it's really unfair for a lot of these Russian players to kind of have their career taken away from him. But you put it in the context against what guys like Stokowski and, you know, Alexander Yusik, for example, in in boxing are going through. I mean, it's incomparable. Um, Mm. So it's, yeah, I I highly recommend everyone read it, really, because it's, you know, it it puts a lot of things in very strong perspective. Um, Mm. Yeah, I will put a link on the uh, Love Tennis Pod, Twitter at Love Tennis Pod, um, I'll put a link on there so you can give it a read and um, give Mike the clicks he deserves. I know some of you will object to it because of the Daily Mail, but um, sport is very much a separate silo there. I, I know it well, and Mike is a, a fine journalist and a fine writer, so I urge you to go and read that. Um, next, we'll be talking about Emma Raducanu, Igor Shontek, and a little bit about one man, Novak Djokovic. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I was just regaling off air the lads with, uh, if you think you've had a bad Monday, imagine sitting down at your desk at 8 o'clock in the morning, having cycled to work like a good responsible citizen that I am, and realising that you have left your rucksack with all of your clothes and your wallet and your keys on your desk at home, and now have to sit in your sweaty cycling gear at work all day. That was my Monday morning, so I hope that makes you all feel a bit better about things. I imagine Iga Swantek had a marginally better Monday morning than that because she cannot stop winning. It's quite remarkable, really. Uh, she won her fourth title of the year this week uh, in Stuttgart. She beat Arena Sabalenka 6-2-6-2 in the final. She's now won consecutive titles in Doha, Indian Wells, Miami and Stuttgart. Uh, it's a winning run that puts her in the kind of company... I think the kind of company we hoped and expected she would end up in. Uh, in terms of 21st century winning runs in the WTA, I think she's up to 23. Am I right in saying she's up to 23 matches now? 
in tw- in a row, victories in a row, which puts her something like ninth on the 21st century list. I'll read you the names of people who have done longer streaks in the 21st century. Venus Williams, Serena Williams, Justine Annan, Serena Williams, Victoria Azarenka, Serena Williams, Justine Annan, Venus Williams, and then Naomi Osaka uh, on 23 last year. Um, George, we know how good Iga Shontek is. We've talked about how well she's played this year. It, it must be quite refreshing, nevertheless, that she's gone from hard, where she was incredibly dominant, onto clay and, and looks like she's not even really stopped to change her shoes. Yeah, um, it is encouraging. And I think we've always said about the film tech that her ability to play on all surfaces well will serve her very well. It's always just been about finding some consistency. Um, and let's be honest, I mean, the consistency she's found now is pretty bloody impressive. I mean, it, it, it's not often these matches are close. I think Samson over got a set off her, but that that must be one of the only sets people have taken off her in about three weeks. Um, uh, it, it, you're right, George. It is the only set <laughs> that anyone has taken off her since Angelique Kerber on the 9th of March. The big challenge now, of course, is can you do it in the slams? Can you do it when it really matters? I know Calvin hates my argument about the the day gap between slam matches but that's the time when in my humble unprofessional opinion um that it does get to you in the women's game that's like the extra the kind of feeling of weight on top of it and Sviantec has won one grand slam when there was no pressure on her there was no expectation but she's not followed that up and it all went to pieces in the semi-finals of the Australian Open the way she's bounced back has been as amazing I'm not you know I don't want to dwell on that result too much but she needs to power through and win it now Barty's out of the way I think only Paola Badosa is the player I'd say could could stop her in theory Paola Badosa interesting new world number two Paola Badosa we should say as well yeah. uh, but she lost in the semi-finals in Stuttgart uh, she was beaten by Arena Sabalenka who in fairness has beaten Schwantek quite recently and I would suggest Calvin on the basis that Yelena Ostapenko has a 3-0 and record against Schwantek Arena Sabalenka is the type of player who could, on the right day, beat Shontek just because she blows her away, and that's really the only way she's going to lose at the moment. Yeah, um, I'd still favour Shontek most of the time, but um, Shontek, yeah, could can play that way. Um, I've not seen um, Sabalenka play all that much recently, so I don't know whether she's entirely got over those serving issues, because while we're talking about playing under pressure, that's what might happen. <laughs> And Sabalenka, let's be honest, has never been great under pressure in the big tournaments. Um, that's where she doesn't play well. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair point. I think it's interesting that you see a clay court. I mean, I know that Stuttgart, George, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but Stuttgart, I think, is one of the quicker clay courts. It's obviously indoors, which has a different... I mean, I don't know, Calvin, how does indoor clay differ from, from outdoor clay in particular? It's more that there's... Clay's, it's more that clay differs from one court to another. Um, right. you, you can go from pretty medium paced clay, um, which you tend to get, you tend to get more medium pace if it's hot in the, in the hotter countries. And if it's, if it's dry, because the water just slows it down. As you can imagine, the balls pick up more clay when, it, when the court's slightly damp. Um, so places like, like Northern Germany tend to have very, very slow clay. Yeah. Whereas, I guess somewhere in the south of Italy, south of Spain, um, even Monte Carlo historically is pretty medium paced. Yeah. But um, and then you obviously have the issue of Madrid that it's um, it's altitude. So indoor clay would be more 
Um, it depends on the court. I don't know what, what, what the court speed is, but then the air is thinner, obviously, because it's indoors, so the ball will fly through the air a bit more than mm. it will outdoors. Interesting. Um, and yeah, so kind of backing up, having two big hitters in Shontek and Sabalenka in the final. Uh, six double faults for Sabalenka in the final, Calvin, which I think over two sets is a pretty decent tally for Sabalenka, given like three months ago you'd expect that to be in double figures, quite frankly. Uh, I yeah. seem to remember her, I think, was it in Australia? She won a match. She did the encore interview, and the first thing she said was, only nine double faults, yes! Which I thought really made me laugh and was quite sweet. Um, and given everything that's going on off the court for her, obviously being Belarusian and, and with what we talked about, pretty impressive. Um, Iga Shrontek's run also gives a chance to see Emma Raducanu on clay for one of the very first times in her career, given that she only played her first clay court pro match in the Billie Jean King Cup a couple of weeks ago. She beat Storm Sanders, uh, 6-1, 6-2. She then played lucky loser Tamara Korpach, who I have to admit I've not seen play before, but she beat her 6-love, 2-6, 6-1, and then came up against Shrontek. Um, George, 6-4, 6-4 defeat. Uh, I don't know about you, but eight games is certainly on the upper end of my estimate of how many I thought Raducanu would get. <laughs> Definitely. I think that was a pretty... It never sounds like a, a decent result in normal times to lose in straight sets, but I think you'd absolutely take take a four and four against Fiontek on, on current form. I, I thought Radicano had a really good week. To be fair, I was, I think we we're a bit kind of um, you know, criticizing her a little bit last week in terms of you know she obviously had that first top fifty win and then had the blisters problem and there's lots of questions over her durability etc. I think she's bounced back really well considering. There were talk about her maybe pulling out of Stuttgart, so hmm. I, I kind of wonder if if this this week might be a bit of a turning point. To be honest, it feels to me like I think we're a bit worried, given her lack of experience on clay, like whether she'd be able to pick up as many points as we were thinking, given how bad the start of the year's been. Um, but actually, I think there might be a bit of an uptick if she gets the odd decent draw here. So, yeah, I think probably the most encouraging week, well, comfortably the most encouraging week she's had since the U.S. Open, I would say. Uh, a few stats to to pull out for you. It was the first time Emma Raducanu's won back-to-back matches uh, since Cluj in October last year in Romania when she beat Herzog and Bogdan. Um, her meeting with Shontek was staggeringly her first ever match against a top 10 player, uh, bearing in mind that she is almost a top 10 player herself at this point. Uh, having moved up to number 11 in the rankings uh, this morning. Uh, and she will probably go higher than that, given that she still <laughs> won't have any points to defend until she gets to Wimbledon. So we imagine she will pick up uh, a top 10 ranking for the first time uh, in her uh, career. Uh, she beat Storm Sanders 6-1, in an hour and 10 minutes, which is impressive. You know, Storm Sanders had some decent results, albeit she's still only just inside the top 200. Um Calvin, I don't know how much you saw of, of Raducanu over the week, but um, you know we talk about clay court as a tactically challenging conditions, and I think we think that that is maybe what Raducanu lacks at the moment, is that that tennis IQ. Um, I don't know if I'd say that, because before she won the US Open, everything about her was that she was such a smart player. Right. I wouldn't say she lacks tennis IQ. There's other things that I think she lacks. I'm not sure that I'm reading a whole lot into the last week, just based on the people who she beat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lucky loser, and who did she beat in the first round again? Storm Sanders, the world number 197. Yeah, I, I don't really know what there is to read into those two things. I'm sure that some of the Radicanu, I believe the youth call them stands, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> um, 
would would take huge positives from it. I'm I'm not sure I would. I think she'd have beaten those players at any stage since the US Open. It's not that type of player she struggled with. So um, it's not criticism of Raducanu. She can only beat. She beat the player she was expected to beat. She lost the play, lost to the player who she wasn't expected to beat. Do you, do you take any positive in a, a tight match with Sviantec at the minute compared to something in the context of you know how many bagels and breadsticks she's been handed out for fun the last few weeks, or is yeah. that setting the bar too low for the mighty? Setting the bar too on? low. Look, we're not getting. I'm not getting into like, <laughs> oh, she got four and four. It's like it's like one that tennis parents always come to me with. Oh, but a lot of games went to juice. Right, brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> I, I say that all the time. Gallant, yeah, it's but... always the players who've lost six one six love. So a lot of games went to juice. Right, like, yeah, so pretty much a win. Then shall we call it? That? Um, no, look, it's four and four. You know, it's like, is that close? You know, is that is that what we call a close match? Was she ever in front in the match? I think, I think um, in the. In the backdrop of how unclose film sex matches have been over the last few weeks, it's it feels yeah. closer. Uh, <laughs> I'll try and quantify it, um, if if I can. Uh, partly that the match lasted one hour forty five minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that is the second longest match that Strontek has had to play since the second round in Indian Wells, i.e., when she started this run of of straight sets victories. So. You know, uh, okay, the rallies were longer. I appreciate this is the realms of tennis parents and and every game going to juice, but she did seem to rally with her more effectively. Um, if you look at the dominance ratio, which is a stat that um, Jeff Sackman's tennisabstract.com um, website generates, um, it was 1.41, which is quite a high number, but compared to all of her previous matches, again, only one or two of the previous 23 wins, or 21 wins, I should say, had a dominance factor of lower than that. So it would suggest that compared to lots of the other people that Shrontek has smashed this year, and there are plenty of them, uh, Raducanu was getting a little bit closer. It's it's one of those, isn't it? It's the tennis scoring system. Look, you you can go down that route and say, oh, you know, she did both four and four. But then, like, Shrontek beat um, Osaka. What was it, four and love or four and one? Four and love. Yeah, four and love, right? If Osaka plays Raducanu, she's beating her handily. I'm not, you know, it's not like that. I used to coach this girl whose dad, his dad was a bit of a nutter. And he used to think it was like an algorithm like this. He'd go like, oh, well, my girl beat that girl two and two. And then she beat the other girl two and two. So that means my girl should beat her love and love. And anything, <laughs> anything worse than a love and love is a, is pretty much a loss. Right. And it's like, that's look, you know, it's different matches on different days. Like I said, the only thing I'd read into last week with Raducanu was that she beat the players who she was expected to beat and she lost to the player who she wasn't expected to beat. And at the end of the day, it's the world number one beat the world number 11, four and four, which is kind of about what you'd expect. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Can't disagree with that too much. Um, The only other things to draw out of uh, Stuttgart was the... Uh, success, and Calvin's going to hate it when I call this success, of Lyudmila Samsonova taking a set off Iga Shontek, which in fairness no player had done in six weeks. Um, I, I then, I've watched quite a lot of Lyudmila Samsonova this week, and uh, I promptly posted in the uh, Love Tennis podcast WhatsApp group, does anyone have any strong feelings on Lyudmila Samsonova? There was little response because I think she's going to win the French Open. Um, my power rankings model has her quite high uh, as someone who might outperform their uh, their expectations. 
Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's the first time she's won three matches in a row for about a year, so who knows. But she is an interesting player because she uh, grew up in Russia but then has spent a lot of time in Italy as well. And she trained at the Riccardo Piatti Academy, which obviously uh, helped produce Yannick Sinner. So, um, and she's a, a, a big, tall girl and she hits the ball well. And she's got some very impressive wins on clay. So uh, just a name to watch out for, uh, Ludmilla Samsonova. George. That that prediction has the potential to age as well as my Barty uh, Sviantek French Open final prediction, given she <laughs> might get banned from the French Open next week. So. <laughs> I'm glad yeah, someone else is risky. Might <laughs> be in a similar shouts. situation. Um, Paola Badosa is up to world number two as well. She, as I mentioned earlier, got to the uh, semi-finals before losing to Sabalenka. Very kind of sort of feels deserved, which hasn't always been the case in WTA rankings, George. Yeah, definitely, and I think. The thing I've said most about Bedosa about kind of her last year has been, I think, with a year of extra experience last year, I think she wins the French Open. I think she has the tools to be a really, really excellent clay court player. And, you know, she is well number two. Of course, she's an excellent clay court player, but she's got the potential to win slams. And, you know, that big um, win in Indian Wells last year, I think, was her first Masters title. It's just felt like she's been one of those players, a bit kind of like Sakari, to be fair as well, who just has been slowly ticking off every extra stage. And I, I kind of, of course, I think Sviantec is going to win the French Open right now. You'd be foolish to back against Sviantec in her form. But Badosa is playing well and is very good on clay. And there aren't too many great specialists out there, as we've kind of spoken about before. So I think it'd be a big tournament for her. Um, just briefly, because I mentioned it in the intro, um, good week for Anastasia Potapova over in Istanbul. She actually had to come through qualifying uh, to get into the main draw, but she then romped through the rest of it. Uh, she beat Petra Martic, Sarah Sarivas Tormo, Yulia Putinseva, and then a very good win over Veronika Kudamatova uh, in the final. Beat her 6-3, 6-1 uh, to claim the title, so uh, a decent week for her. To say the least, um, she was ranked 122 uh, before that. She is now ranked significantly higher, uh, 78 in fact, so uh, a big jump there. Uh, Cowan? Um, yeah, it came about a year too late, didn't it? Because I had her as my um, <laughs> up-and-coming player last well, year. Well, you can probably take some credit for it. You can probably say, well, you know, she didn't have the year I expected her to have, but, you know, I still picked a player. So you well, can I, I didn't, for that. I, yeah, I didn't expect to spend the whole of last year on yachts in Dubai. No, I expected <laughs> a, winning tennis matches. Um, I also think it was quite a good week for two British girls out there, wasn't it? They made the semis. Um, Olivia Nichols and Alicia Barnett. Um, made the semis of the. They've already made a final, I think, of a WTA 250 this year, and this was in the doubles. Yeah, in the doubles. Yeah, it was interesting actually. I, I, I think maybe cover this just now. I was speaking from uh, to a couple of the guys who are in the coaching team from the Billie Jean King Cup um, last year, and they were saying that they they got a little bit of criticism, I think, in the media for not selecting a recognised doubles pair. Um, and then obviously the tie came down to the doubles and and they sort of made a very very decent point i think to me that the problem is is that the the women the billie jean king cup format is different to davis cup so you only actually get to the doubles if the singles is two all um and you have a limited team of who you can select so they were saying that basically you you're taking a huge risk selecting a doubles pair because if somebody from the singles gets injured that or, or say you have a couple of injuries You've then got no one to play the singles. And apparently only, it's something like only 14% of ties have actually gone to the doubles. Wow. Um, 
in in the last couple of years. Hmm. Um, yeah, Alicia Barnett and Olivia Nichols now both on the well, both up to career high rankings and both on the verge of of the top one hundred. So um, I think they're currently the British number three and number four. So um, yeah, certainly making a case for. And, and, you know, I often have people on Twitter say, oh, why don't you write about doubles more? Why don't you talk about doubles more? We'd love to. It's just that it doesn't quite have the profile um, that that singles does, clearly. Uh, and we haven't had, that I can think of, a really, uh, I mean, Calvin, you'll be able to know much better than me, elite-level female British doubles players. Anyone? Um, not that I can think of. In Obviously, Laura Robson won mixed doubles, Wimbledon. Yeah, we know what I think of mixed doubles. Um <laughs> Absolute exhibition event, um, but um, George, yeah, did you have an elite? Did you have a name? I, I was actually just going to come back to the the, the kind of challenge of the point um, that was made against you writing doubles. There is that uh, you probably missed. This might be the most newsworthy last twelve months in tennis I think there's ever been. It's, it's <laughs> there's not been many like down periods. Yeah, and in fairness, you know we do like you know the the, the best British doubles player is now the world number one. So. And I wrote about it, so uh, I feel like I've done my done my dues to a certain extent. Um, let's crack on. There's still loads more to get through. I said we'd talk about Novak Djokovic, and finally we will. This might be a record. It might. This might be the longest time we've taken to actually start talking about Novak Djokovic for about six months. Uh, he was in action on home clay uh, in Belgrade this week. Uh, he only beat Serbian. He only played, I should say, Serbians or Russians. Um, he beat Laszlo Jair, uh, Maimir Kasmanovic, Karen Hatchinov, and then he was beaten in the final by Andrei Rublev. He did not win an opening set all week. Uh, he was he every single time basically he came from behind, and then in the final he couldn't. Andrei Rublev bageled him uh, in the final set, which has only happened twelve times in his career before then. Um, Georgie's talking about feeling drained, uh, about how he's had a bit of an illness that he's not really sure what it is and that he feels very tired in final sets. Is Novak Djokovic, and whisper it, getting old? Um, I, I like that he says he doesn't know what the illness is when he was banging on about definitely having COVID at the start of the year. I wonder if, <laughs> I wonder if that's a factor. Um, is he getting old? It's a good question. I mean, I, I, I've actually been quite impressed with the bits and pieces I've seen of him this week. I, I caught the end of um, was it his first win of the week and he he was striking the ball really really well um and looked very fired up i to be honest like i've kind of said this before about Djokovic that the last year or so when he's been so good at the slams results outside of it haven't really felt that kind of decisive for me either way for him i think what he needs at the minute is matches to get his match fitness back up so him being drained right now probably you kind of expect after a tough week and first couple of weeks back on the tour for a while. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. I think this week was a step in the right direction. Some good hard matches. He came through, found some good level tennis. I'm pretty sure he's going to peak pretty well for the French Open. And I've got him as the favorite again, all of a sudden, despite Nadal's great starts of the year. I think Nadal, um, obviously being slightly hampered by fitness. I think that's playing into Novak's, hands right now and I'm pretty sure he'll be he'll be ready by then so even though your rankings have Sissipas as you may want to uh, Ka- Calvin <laughs> uh, we'll come to that George there's an algorithm uh, Calvin <laughs> I know you're a big um, you're a big fan of match practice and, and a big kind of um, what's the word oh my, my words have gone 
you know, fan, supporter, advocate. That's the word I was needing. It's been a long day. Uh, I know you're a big advocate of match practice, but but is is that why? Is it because when you haven't got matches under your belt and you get into a third set, your legs don't have in them what they need to? Or, or is it about mental kind of capacity and that kind of thing? It's everything, yeah. It's the physical side of things. You can be immensely fit and then you get into a match and you're blowing at four all in the first. Hmm. I've seen that happen many a time. I, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that Djokovic won't be extremely competitive at the very least in two to three weeks. Um, he'll be there and... Yeah, in the French. I think one thing I would say is I think maybe it's not so much that he's come down, it's that a few more have caught, are getting closer. Mm. Um, that, you know, as we were seeing a bit last year, Pass was pretty close to him in the final. Um, Zverev beats him pretty regularly now. Rublev's there in the mix. There's Carlos Alcaraz who's coming in the mix. So it's not like the French Open could be, there's a fair few people who could win it. Hmm. Um, one of whom I think we probably wouldn't have considered a few months ago but we have to at least talk about now is Andre Rublev who won the title he beat Djokovic 6-2, 6-7-6-love as I mentioned um, a decent run he beat Fabio Fanini in the semi-final which shouldn't be sniffed at realistically he also beat Yiri Lehecha Le- I can't say his name Lecheka uh, who's the Czech player who's making some serious strides and I think is another name you should watch out for. He's only 20 um, and he obviously picked up some amazing wins uh, in the Davis Cup finals last year, which is where I first noticed him. So um, clearly some form for Rublev. We always say, or certainly Calvin, I know you, you say a lot that he's not the most skillful player in the world, but beating Djokovic on clay, even if it's a Djokovic who has had a bit of a wobble and isn't in top form, I mean, it's it's an impressive result to have on your on your card, isn't it? Yeah, any win against Djokovic is a decent win. Is that his first time he's beat him? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, I'd still expect Djokovic to give it another two weeks. I think he'd beat Rublev. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good win for him. Um, as we've said for a while on Rublev, he tends to clean up the guys who are, who he's ranked above, doesn't he? And tends to struggle against the ones who who are above him. Um, I, I guess... suppose it was, a, it was a 250 final. So really, we should have known that Rublev, the king of the 250s, yeah, was true. going to win. <laughs> true. Yeah, it's... Uh... I mean, we're surely going to be online for a somewhere like in a 250 this year, Rublev against Rude. Uh, in a final, <laughs> on on, on clay. clay in like October. Yes. Yeah, yeah, maybe like Gestad. Oh, yeah. Like that. So, say that, yeah, the clay that comes after Wimbledon, that's definitely yeah. when that final's happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, George, how, how would you rate Rublev's clay court chances? I assume we're going to say third tier at the French Open. Yeah, I mean... I, I'm not as convinced as Calvin is as it's as wide open as people have believed. I, I still think one of Nadal or Djokovic will win. Um, I think then you're looking at my second tier would be Sissipas, Zverev, and probably Alcaraz in there at the minute, but still potentially not quite on that level to a degree, which is maybe a bit harsh, but I just, you know, in terms of like consistency of delivering at slams and stuff, you know, it's always hard to have a, a proper read on that. Then in the tier below, yeah, Rublev in there with people. I mean, even team, I have in that tier just based on past performances, but the reality is he's probably absolutely nowhere near. Have you, se- have you seen anything. Dominic team hit a forehand lately? <laughs> like it's, uh, yeah, like, he's not in the mix. 
<laughs> no, I'm, I'm a bit, but I'm just saying, but of people I genuinely think can win the French Open, the list is very short. So I'd put in someone who so, has... Like when you say can, like I don't think you know what the word can means. Like, <laughs> what do you think? Wait a minute. I think there's a you, certain level you, think, you have to come you, through to you win think a slam. T- and... You think team has more a chance of winning a slam, winning the French, than Kasper Andre Rude. Rublev? No, I said I'd put them in the same tier. You think he has the same chance as Andre Rublev? I think he's in that no same chance. ballpark. I, I don't think either of them have a chance. So that, no, that's what's the last time that Dominic's team won a match? <laughs> when did the last one? I'm just match? saying. Look, I totally agree with French. you. I totally agree with you. But it's about a ceiling, isn't it, and what you could get up to. I don't think he will now, probably. But he's still in that tier for me. Casper Ruud's also in that tier. None of them are going to win the tournament. Vavrinka's probably still in that tier. Just I'll tell about. you something, <laughs> something I was thinking, going slightly off topic earlier, when I saw this debate about I saw somebody wrote some nonsense about how Alcaraz is better than, he's going to be better than Nadal. Because they said he moves better than Nadal did at the same age. He hits bigger than Nadal did at the same age and all this kind of thing. And it got me thinking about the kind of, I guess the graph of where tennis players go. Um, And this is kind of like towards the end of Nadal's career now. And I wonder like, is the current version of Nadal better than the 19 year old version of Nadal? Like, who'd win that match? Interesting. Uh, Nadal now, I think. And do they, you know, but maybe it's that. Maybe it's that it's a, a sort of, you know, I don't know where you'd, how you'd term it. Maybe they, they're at the same place of, of the, like, Nadal, he was at 19, he was on the way up, and now he's on the way down, and maybe mm. we're at the same place. Obviously, the 23-year-old version of Nadal was better than the current version of yeah. Nadal. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yes, but caveat. I, I think the current Nadal is an absolute fiend. Like, I think he's yeah. a whole different animal. Um, but yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, th- this kind of leads me on to what I mentioned earlier from Danny Everett, uh, our loyal listener who drops an email, uh, lovetennispod at gmail dot com. He said, "I wanted to some- comment on something Calvin said about Carlos Alcaraz being the most developed eighteen-year-old he's ever seen." Uh, No offence to Carlos, or Calvin for that matter. I thought that statement was pretty funny, not only because I work at a university and see guys who are bigger than Carlos frequently, but because I think the claim that he's bigger than Rafa at the same age is a bit dubious. Uh, But also, it instantly brought to mind articles I've read and a few Twitter posts about NFL players in high school. Um, He has sent us a couple of links to uh, guys, people who are NFL fans will know these names, Derek Henry, DK Metcalf, um, who ran track for the US national team um, and is also an NFL player, uh, Miles Garrett and Nick Chubb. Uh, I mean, I have to say, these guys are 18 and like look completely insane. Um, and I think, uh, who's the basketball player who was absolutely enormous? Zion Williamson? Yeah, Zion uh, Williamson was I believe, massive, to be fair. I believe he was a completely absurd size. Anyway, uh, Danny says, I want to share with you, as I figured you guys might get a kick out of these photos, uh, as I have, and to keep Calvin grounded after that nice comment he got in the five-star review you read in the beginning of the podcast. I'll <laughs> say, it's, can it's I... about time, isn't it, someone's called <laughs> out. Can I, can I say this, though, that I think there's a, there's a, a conflation there that, the one thing that you that there's two things, and this is this is scientifically proven. There's two things that you can't alter um, in terms of how much no matter how much physical work you do, you can never alter a person's maximum height, and you can never alter their, a person's maximum speed. So obviously, I'm not saying that Carlos Alcaraz is taller than Zion Williamson, but we have to do it in 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 relative to that. And I think relative to to that, then Alcaraz is 
as developed as Zion Williamson was at 18. And Zion Williamson, I, I watched quite a bit of basketball, was, but also I'll say about Zion Williamson, his body is knackered. He can't play anymore. Hmm. He's, he's barely been able to play in the NBA. Whereas Carlos Alcaraz will still be playing professional tennis 30 weeks of the year in 10 years' time. And that's, that's interesting because, at. of course, that, that was what people said about Rafa when he was the same age, right? They said, well, there's no way he can possibly sustain this level. And, and, and they looked at him and said, he's just, he's the wrong shape and the wrong size, um, which, you know, may or may not turn out to be to be the case. Well, one of the reasons why they said that was Nadal had tendonitis in his knees very young. And again, a bit of an anomaly here is that one, tendonitis is a wear and tear injury and there's no way of curing it other than rest. There's yeah. no there's no surgery or anything that you can do. And so it is remarkable that he's managed to have the career he's had with tendonitis for about 15 years. Mm. Um, well, we hope that Carlos Alcaraz doesn't have tendonitis because, I, I, as I say, I watched a lot of tennis over the last week. Um, his match against Stefanos Tsitsipas on Friday night uh, in Barcelona was maybe my match of the year. It was like not just for the tennis on show, but also for the crowd being so into it for i mean alcaraz has so much charisma you know he he loves getting in, in with the crowd he's got the big fist pump going on you know he makes it a real mano a mano battle um and it was and he won 6-4-5-7-6-2 and yeah it was just sensational to watch we're talking about quite often in the women's game like the lack of rivalries developing between like the best players like that feels to me already like it's a really a match that could get people permanently excited about for the next 15 yeah. years. Like, I, I mean, the problem is that Alcaraz is already Alcaraz is winning, but <laughs> yeah, I know. But they're, but they're great matches. I mean, you know, I think Sissipas, he used to have a really bad record against like Felix, for example. He did eventually kind of get around it. I, 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 and it's just, it's a great mix of styles. I think it's a really interesting matchup that even though I agree with you, that I think Alcaraz will probably dominate the rivalry, but I, I think it could be a bit of a, a heavyweight boxing uh, event when those two get together in the future. I wonder whether Tsitsipas might end up having like a sort of Murray of a career, like where he just gets to a lot of. I mean, Murray has won three Grand Slams, but in another era would have won eight. And I wonder if Tsitsipas might end up with the same thing. Like, I just I don't see much of a curve with him, like as in like a development curve. Like I feel there's a plateauing and. You I wonder. You look at Sitsipas. I look at Sitsipas and wonder where he gets better than he is now. Yes, that's is, exactly. Is is this the level? Is this his maximum level? Now, there's a chance that the players who are beating him, Nadal, Djokovic, just drop out, and his level that he's at now might be enough to win slams. But I probably don't think he gets any better than he yeah. is now. Mm. And and to be fair, I, I, I do. That is kind of how I see the game at the minute that I think Sissipas level is very very good and it was fantastic at the French Open last year I mean we'd we'd be doing him a disservice to say that wasn't slam winning level the, the problem is there's a oh I wrote three... a match report of him winning his first slam yeah it's yeah. The, you know it's on the cutting room floor it's done yeah <laughs> he's um but you know these are complete freaks of nature these guys are trying to come through even yeah. at 36 or whatever they are now. Uh, should have a brief word for Alex de Menor, who had match points against Alcaraz in the semi-final um, on, on Sunday morning. The weather meant that all the semis were pushed to, to Sunday. Um, de Menor played absolutely out of his skin as well. I mean, yeah. he's a great guy to watch at the best of times. And it neatly brings me on to minute tennis for the day. Um, Alex de Menor is one of the best movers, or at least one of the fastest players uh, on tour, as actually Calvin, you saw up close 
uh, last year at Wimbledon when he played that incredible, well, round the net shot. Doesn't even really cover it um, in against Luke diving and, round the net shot <laughs> against Luke and Anton in the doubles. Which, yeah. if you haven't seen, I'm sure you're able to find on the old interhighway. Um, he hates getting drop shotted, Dominor. Um, boy, did he get drop shotted by Carlos Alcaraz uh, because he he really is something of a master of one of tennis's favourite or least favourite, depending on your point of view. George, would you do the honours with some sort of clock? Yeah, I knew you weren't ready for that. You should see, yeah. honestly, the face he makes. He's a classic civil servant. He's prepared for nothing. <laughs> very good. So Calvin... Also very adaptable. <laughs> also very not at your desk. Um <laughs> Calvin, you've got one minute to tell us how best to play the drop shot, how best to use it, and how it's much more important these days than it ever was. Uh, the drop shot is one of those shots that when whenever you see it played on TV or, or anywhere and it's successful, everyone says what a great decision it was. And whenever it's not successful, it was a terrible decision. Um, and it's criticised for that. Basically, the way you want to... The, the, most drop shots don't succeed because they hit the net. So first of all, you have to clear the net and most people try and get them too close to the net. The thing what a lot of people don't realise is that the next reason why they're not successful is they don't have enough height on them. So if, if you think about the trajectory of it in almost like a mini lob, so the ball has to go up and it has to come down and then not bounce forwards. So if you push the ball over the net, it's then bouncing towards your opponent, which is going to help them get to it. So what you want the ball to do is you want it to come down directly and then bounce almost straight up in the air. In terms of um, development of the drop shot, the one that we've seen recently is the side spin drop shot, which I think I'm going to talk about when one of you asks me a question. (laughs) Cowan has very cleverly uh, worked out how to get around the fact that he's only allowed a minute to talk about it. Uh, by realising that we always have more questions, and I know listeners at home always have more questions. Tell us about the side spin drop shot, Calvin. So this, yeah, this the side spin drop shot is something that has really come about in the last couple of years, and it's it's mainly played off the backhand side, but it's basically just one where you're going to cut a, the players cut across the the back the side of the ball and the back of it, so it hits the ground and bounces sideways. So what I was talking about there was when the ball pushes on towards the opponent. So it allows them more chance to get to it. The side spin one, it's usually played down the line uh, off the backhand side because you can't play, you can't really get inside the forehand and generate as much spin. And it basically hits the court and moves directly to the side. Is it fair to describe current times as the most drop shotting era in history? What's the probably tra- not trajectory? Prob- probably not in history. Um, it was played a lot, I guess, in the 70s when players serve and volleyed, that kind of thing. Um, it's always been played quite a lot on clay. It's probably been played more now than at any stage it has been in the last 25 years, I'd say, um, just as we're getting more skillful players and they need to find different ways of playing it. It also gets played more on clay courts because, one, you need to find different ways of trying to win points because, um, as we discussed last week, you can't hit through players as easily. And two, because of when you think about setting off to tra- chase a drop shot, the stable is obviously the, the surface is obviously unstable. So your first step, you're not really moving anywhere. So the wrong footing drop shot is one that you'll see a lot on clay. So imagine a cross court forehand that breaks across the sideline. The ball comes back to your forehand. The player will then the op- opponent will then be recovering back to the centre. So if you can play a drop shot almost back behind. They've, they're going to struggle to get that because of the unstableness of the surface. They, they'll wrong foot themselves and probably slide too far to the other way. There we go. I have 
two sort of linked questions based on what you just said then so when you said like the seven volley era was like a big time for drop shots obviously i wasn't really around there so much i kind of assumed it would be less because you know they're I, at I, the net already i didn't mean it in terms of serving volley like that i meant it's more the the rackets that they played with they didn't have the power so they had to think of different ways of oh, winning okay. right, so great, just, great, great, great. just more field shots in general back then okay so, and it kind of leads me to my next question Who's had the best drop shot in history? Uh, the best drop shot in history, Fabrice Santoro had a phenomenal drop shot. Um, he used to do, he used to hit a two-handed slice forehand. Um, he had a phenomenal, and it was basically if anyone. Yeah. I can't even I can't even comprehend that. Yeah. Um, uh, so he would probably be up there. Um, yeah, I'd say Santoro probably. Um, I would think. And worst. Um, uh, Andy Murray on a bad day. <laughs> no, Jock Rich has had some bad ones. <laughs> yeah, Probably true. Alex Verev. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only because it involves touch, <laughs> yeah. which which we know he has none of. Um, um, probably me, actually, Calvin Benton. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, chaps, we're running out of time. We're going to do some quick hits. Uh, it's one word answers. Andy Murray has announced that he's going to play a couple of clay court tournaments. Uh, Calvin and George. Calvin, is this a good idea? One word. Uh, yeah, he needs matches. Oh, he got a few words in. George? Yes, he needs matches. <laughs> and second question, he says he's not going to play the French Open. Does anyone believe him? Yeah, he won't play the French, he's, he won't play the French Open. Uh, I'm on the fence. He might play the French Open. It depends how well it goes. That's a lot I, of words. Sorry. <laughs> I'm with you, George. I think if he gets a sniff, I think if he thinks he might be able to win a couple of rounds, he might fancy it. Um, Serena Williams is uh, part of uh, a bid to buy Chelsea Football Club, uh, along with Lewis Hamilton and about 400 other celebrities. I don't know if uh, necessarily we need a one-word answer, but uh, George, will you ever go and watch Chelsea if Serena Williams owns the club? <laughs> Will it make you more likely to go and watch Chelsea? Uh, I, I'm totally unfirst on how involved she is or not. I just thought it was kind of vaguely interesting that she's involved <laughs> in it. Uh, Calvin, do you think it'll make a difference to anyone if Serena Williams owns Chelsea? <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not going to get... I mean, it doesn't make a difference to anyone, but it's got me thinking about tennis and football stadiums and how great it was when the French had the Davis Cup final. Was it in the Marseille ground, the Stade Velodrome, I think? Yeah. And I quite fancy uh, a big tennis match. If, I tell you what, George, if the LTA want to take Wimbledon away from Wimbledon, they could just, you know, Stamford Bridge be ideal. They don't use it in the summer. There's, there's, there's the Hurlingham Club just around the corner. They could use that for outside courts. I think we might have stumbled upon something here. Move the British Open. Um, I think that is all we've got time for this week. Uh, we did want to mention something else, George, did we? You're making a face like you might have any other business. Uh, I suppose there was a... Peng Shui story that kind of broke today um, again about or well, yesterday was it when Steve Simon said they're definitely not going back to China which I guess we sort of imagined would be the case but good to see they're not dropping it is my close attempt to a one word answer and big financial decision because they do rely heavily on their Chinese money the WTA so it'll be interesting to see how they uh, work around I suppose to, without wanting to hark back to our quite serious first half of the podcast it's another one of those situations where you go don't really see how this ends because uh, I know a lot about the Chinese Communist Party and they don't tend to do things by half measures. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't see them going back. It, it's kind of impossible for them to go back in the current stance, is it? Unless, yeah. So, yeah, quite interesting financially, if nothing else. Indeed. Um, that is all I think we've got time for. Uh, we will talk about Andy Murray at length uh, a bit closer to the time when we know who he's playing and exactly what his status is, um, because I know that a lot of you are big Andy Murray fans and want to hear more about that. I promise you, you will hear it. Uh, but that is all we've got time for. Thank you so much for listening. Please do leave us a rating and a review. Tell your friends about the Love Tennis podcast. We don't have any. Please use yours. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.